Thank you for listening to Mailbox Money, your guided tour through safe, sacred, and speculative investing with a plan and a purpose to do more good with newfound peace of mind. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Mailbox Money. I am Jackson Wood, joined as always by my friend and my partner, Ryan Kruger. In today's episode, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a story. And uh, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of power in, in storytelling. Um, I don't know if any of our listeners are active on Facebook or on social media, but one of my favorite you know, there's many downsides to social media and getting sucked into there. But one of my favorite features that I think is a good one that I'm bullish on is this memories feature, right? So if you post on there, you log into your account or whatever, it will show you, give you a little notification. It will show you what you were doing on this day a couple of years ago. Your iPhone will do the same. It will show you photos you took a year ago or two years ago or whatever. So I can't believe how fast time has flown. But the most recent one that I got was from seven years ago. And it was before my son was born. My wife and I found this killer deal uh, on some plane tickets and a hotel combo. And before the baby was born, we wanted to just get away for a few days. And, and so we bit the bullet and went to Paris. Um, and when I say Paris, I don't actually mean Paris. That's what I thought and where I thought we were going. But because I'm so cheap, which we've talked about multiple times on this show, it turns out that our hotel accommodations weren't in Paris. They were north of Paris. And in my mind, you know, as an Idaho person, when I hear something being an hour north, you know, or I see something about an hour north on a map, I, I think, oh, quick, easy drive right into town, really fast commute, get right into the city, right? So I think this can be great. Well, it turns out that Paris and the outlying or surrounding cities are a little more populated than we're than we are here in Idaho, and an hour, you know, or sixty miles north of the city, takes a very long time to travel to. So now I figured out why this, you know, these tickets were so cheap and why it was such a discount. Fortunately, my wife didn't catch on until like maybe the third day. But the idea and the story here, the lesson, is that the first day we wake up, we're excited, we want to go into Paris, and we want to see, uh, you know, we want to start seeing all the sights. And luckily, we made it to the Notre Dame right like the week before the, the cathedral burned down, um, which is a terrible, sad story, but I was really grateful to get to see it. So we walk and we have to take a train. We walk into the train station and it is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life, right? And I'm showing my colors here, being from Idaho, we don't even have a train that you can ride. It's just a cold train hauling, <laughs> hauling commodities back and forth here. You can't, you can't actually get a ticket to go on the train. But we walk into this train station and I'm trying to be this macho, tough guy. I know how to guide us. I think here's our, our train stop, right? So let's get on this train. Let's ride this into Paris and let's go spend the day, have fun, go to dinner. So we sit there. Right across the platform, I see another train show up and it's going in the same direction as our train is going. And I think, well, we better just stay on this train. Let's just wait, right? It picks up the passengers. They jump on, they bolt, they're out of town. My wife and I are still sitting there looking around, you know, a little bit of a bruised ego at this point. By the time two more trains came to that other stop and no train came to our stop, I start second guessing myself in my mind thinking maybe this train is closed or maybe it's a, you know, only runs on certain days. I think that's actually the train that we need to go on. So I tell my wife, let's go, let's walk over to this other platform. We get there, 
takes a few minutes to get over to that other platform. Lo and behold, the train that we were waiting for shows up. Everybody loads onto the train. We didn't have enough time to make it across the terminal because this is like a giant airport style train station. It takes off. So now I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world? Like, we're so lost. My wife is laughing at me. She's taking pictures. We still joke about this. I had no idea what I was doing. And the only thing I knew is that we needed to get from where we were north of Paris, 60 miles south into Paris, so we could actually start enjoying our vacation. So ultimately, I walked up to the guy, tail between my legs, and I said, you know, here's the map I need to get here to here. And he pointed me to the train stop that we were waiting at the first time. We had to wait for the next train to show up 30 minutes later. We wasted like 90 minutes of our first morning just sitting there waiting for a train. It was my fault because we were jumping back and forth between strategies. So there's a lot of lessons that I learned from this story. The first, probably most important lesson is don't trust me when it comes to riding trains. I'm impatient and I don't know how to, how to accurately guide us. Second one is maybe spend a little bit more money and, you know, <laughs> Get a hotel that's actually in the city that you want to stay in. <laughs> but the, uh, the, third, the third lesson, and this is what applies to investing. If you think about my, you know, my story from seven years ago in the train station, this happens to investors all the time, right? This idea of trying to get to your destination the fastest way possible, jumping from one investment style or strategy to another there is a temptation that we see all the time to do this, right? What performs well one year isn't guaranteed to be the top performing investment strategy the next year or the next year after that. And you'll be sitting there, unless you understand how this works, contemplating making a move in and out of different strategies, trying to get to your destination, which is your freedom day and your financial independence as quick as you can. But the problem is that jumping from these strategies, going from one train stop to the next train stop is going to force you and, and more than likely result in you getting to your destination later, right? And it's, you can joke about it, make fun of me on my, my silly story about our vacation, but this is really important stuff when you think about your own personal finances, and there's not a ton of time to wait to, to recover from these big errors. So I thought that that was a, a decent intro to this, to this very complex topic, and hopefully we can break it down a little more for you. But this, this concept of jumping from train stop to train stop and applying that to investing is incredibly powerful. So I can't help but think of evidence-based research. Um, and there's a, a lot of bias in this because my travel plans are the exact opposite of your Idaho hillbilly uh, subscription service and travel hacks, which has a subscriber count of zero. And now I know why. <laughs> um, and, and like, if you're that value guy that ends up an hour outside of town, you got a good deal. Um, and you're jumping around, like you're saying, you're right. It doesn't work in the investment world. Um, you, you can't just find good deals or <laughs> you end up going nowhere any more than you can ignore price and pay for growth, no matter what. Um, so right in between there is some nerdy concept of some evidence-based research. I actually tripped across, and I didn't know what we were going to be talking about last week, but I tripped across and, and my night, my, my bedside table, there was a crumpled up note that was supposed to be in the trash at this point in a drawer. And I uncurled it and it was an old trips itinerary where, I mean, if you, 
I laughed at myself of all the <laughs> evidence-based research I had done to make sure that I don't end up lost like you because I, I don't have that kind of patience. And all of the, I mean, it was like a, it looked like a serial killer's plan. And I would say a, a killer <laughs> of anxiety is my plan of every single hour and activity. And when you got five kids, you got no choice. Uh, yeah. But let, let, let's talk about planning ahead of time and as opposed to jumping. But that was a good example because we are all at that train station and not just individual investors. I mean, we talked about last week and we'll talk about it again today. You, you picked up that ball and, and update on the most sophisticated of strategies fall prey to the exact same dilemmas. Yeah, I love that. And I love I love the idea of an evidence-based strategy. And I love the idea of the planning side of picking your strategy tailored to reach your goals, right? And we have different goals. Not, not, not everybody's the same, but the listeners of this show understand that we're, we're planning for your freedom day. We want there to be, we've gone through it multiple times, enough income in retirement where you don't have to worry about work. So Vanguard, actually, I, I wanted to find a study um, some like empirical evidence of what happens when you jump train stops and, and how detrimental that can be to your portfolio. And I actually remember, I've got a, a quick aside here. When I first got on the Fidelity trading desk, I would sit there in this team and it was, you know, all these guys with two phones on their head and they were talking on the third one and they got these headsets on. And, and after I kind of made friends with everybody after a while, I realized that they started to uh, trade their 401ks. They would move them from 401ks into what's called a brokerage link account and they would trade. And I think a little bit of these orders that would come in, you know, from the funds or any, any family office that we would come in and implement their trades that kind of wore off on them. And they decided that they needed to start implementing these, these types of trades. Right. And I remember the most popular thing to trade that they would invest in and they, they wouldn't necessarily trade it, but they were in and out of this on a, almost a weekly basis was the fidelity biotechnology mutual fund. This isn't a recommendation. I won't give the ticker symbol, but this was the hot topic that every single person on my team would trade. And I saw entire 401ks moving in and out of this fund from the people on my team on a weekly basis. So I looked up the performance and I looked up the years that I was there and the years that I was there where they were trading this thing, we had, it put up banner year, 40 year, 40% in one year, 63% in another year. So then I took the average and I said, and what has it done over the last 10 years? I just want to see if this has performed like all these guys were depending on. 5% average 10-year return, right? And so the, the study that I got from Vanguard talks about this performance chasing versus a buy and hold uh, strategy. When I say buy and hold, that, that can absolutely be an actively managed strategy. What they mean by buy and hold is sticking to one strategy over a long period of time instead of flip-flopping between different strategies, right? And so I'll post the, the picture here so you can kind of see how Vanguard set up this study, but the results were incredibly fascinating. Every single category of buy and hold or evidence-based investing outperformed the performance chasing strategy with the exception of one. And the one category that outperformed performance-based performed by less than 1.8%. Okay. So I'll put up this, the second picture here. And if you're listening to the show, it's definitely worth looking at these image beca images because it's really kind of shocking, uh, the, the evidence here. Um, 
the significant outperformance of sticking to a strategy tailored to your goals over time is, uh, and, and how much that has outperformed a performance chasing metric. And, and the way that they set it up was they bought if the uh, three-year median return was above average and they sold it the second that it dropped below it. The, the way they set the study up isn't necessarily important, but the concept is of if you're running from train station to train station, you're going to significantly underperform this concept of implementing a strategy that it's going to get you to your goal and sticking with that throughout periods of time. And the thing I love the most about this is coming from Vanguard, I anticipated that this would be you know, an indexed uh, passive approach. It's not. I actually looked at the funds that they created in the study or that they used in the study they created, and they had all types of funds. It wasn't even just Vanguard funds. They were looking at funds from all different investment shops, different strategies, and the evidence came back that sticking to your original investment strategy that's moving you towards your goal over time, not jumping from the train station to the train station, is going to get you to your destination the fastest. And I, I just thought that that was incredibly powerful. So that lesson is clear, right? And to put this into very simple terms, and you'll get this a lot if you're listening to you know podcasts or any financial podcast with the exception of ours, I'm proud of that. We've never going to join this crowd. They'll talk about, you know, is now the time for value to outperform? Or what about growth? Or what about, you know, what, why do we overweight small caps and, you know, small cap form? They'll, they'll talk about this and they'll jump and they'll encourage you to jump from different strategy to strategy. That They'll say, you know, you can even jump to dividends or you can jump to consumer defensive or, you, you know, make all these different jumps. That's not the point. The point is stick to the strategy that's going to get you to your destination the fastest. You have to wait a second as you watch another train go by, let it go by because you're confident that you're at the right stop and your train is going to get you there. So now this, this is the point and I, Ryan is going to like seeing this chart because it's the updated version. It's the most recent one I could find of our favorite chart of all time, but it's our favorite train, right? And the train that we take personally in our own accounts and that we recommend the people that we're fortunate enough to work for implement in their accounts. And what it is, it's a chart, it's an incredibly powerful chart from Ned Davis is the updated version. And it talks about the, the power of a dividend growth strategy compared to other strategies. What they did is they looked at dividend growers and initiators uh, to dividend payers with a static dividend, um, non-dividend paying stocks. They looked at all dividend paying stocks, dividend cutters and eliminators, and then S&P uh, equal weight, S&P 500 position. And they compared the performance from 1973 to 2000, the end of 2021 to the end of 2022. Um, and the performance is, is shocking, this, this huge difference. And so I, I just wanted to share that chart because that is the train, to be very specific uh, for our audience, that is the train that we believe will get you to your freedom day the quickest, the most efficiently, and will make it the most enjoyable kind of scenic train ride that, that you can imagine. Um, I wanted to dive in quickly to why we believe this is the train to be on and why we think this is going to move you to your Freedom Day in the most efficient manner. And this, this year, I can't think of a year uh, of my career that has had more um, polarizing views from, from people that I follow and respect. You've got one crowd that thinks, you know, thinks the world is ending. You got the other crowd that thinks there's this incredibly soft landing and it, it's polarizing. Every time I listen to different podcasts, they're going in one direction versus another. And it, it sounds like they've got good evidence for, for their side of the argument. 
And then I have to remind myself that that doesn't matter at all. None of these predictions, none of these expectations, whether they're right or wrong, they don't matter at all because that's not the train that that I'm on. That's not the train I've decided to ride on. I'm not, you know, riding on this roller coaster. I'm, I'm taking the train straight into Paris, right? Um, and I wanted to pull up just the very simple math here of a $1 million portfolio and use this at any amount, but I picked this because it's a round even number. A $1 million portfolio initially investing at a 2.8% dividend yield, right? So $1 million with a current dividend yield of 2.8% is going to pay you, easy math here, $28,000 per year. But let's also assume that that dividend yield is going to grow by 7% a year. So that 2.8 times 7% over and over again, right? And you can see in the chart, if you're looking at the screen, what the income from that portfolio does. And it's important to remember that dividends will grow uh, regardless of this underlying share price if you own the right companies. And that's where we've implemented our dividend growth strategy uh, and our active, actively managed approach here. Um, and so you can kind of bank on this very consistent uh, pay increase over time. And ultimately, the math at the end of year 20 on a million dollar initial investment has a $100,000 per year dividend. You start 2.8% dividend, uh, uh, initial dividend payment that grows by 7% a year, compounded for 20 years, got $100,000 of income from a million dollar portfolio, not including any share price growth, not including any additional investments into the portfolio. And so, as I kind of narrow this conversation in from my train station story in Paris down to very specific, what train are we getting on and why are we going there? We're on this dividend growth approach um, because we believe that the math of dividend growth will help you reach your destination the fastest. And the hardest part of that is ignoring all of the other options. And now you know why Carly Wood was laughing at you when you were jumping back and forth between the tracks. It makes perfect sense to you when you giggle at the investors and looking at those tracks. Well, that's what you were doing with the trains. I mean, you are guilty. That's why she, that's why she was giggling at you. You now realize. Um, so to in, at the risk of that sounding too good to be true and too simple, why don't more people share those results and have experienced that reality that's hiding in plain sight. Some of these beautifully boring examples that we like to talk about. The, the high school class that I was asked to help teach um, last week, I shared the greatest discipline I've learned as a portfolio manager over the last three decades, which I was secretly trying to peer into a teenager's head, which I have a three of those as well. I also predicted it's the greatest superpower for them um, because it's very, very difficult for both the most sophisticated portfolio managers with the largest of institutional money or a teenager sitting awkwardly in class and wondering, like one of them asked me before it even started, hey, what's your deal, dude? <laughs> we're, we're going to get to that. Um, the, 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 the superpower I like to call is JOMO because the reason that most people never find that simple consistency is we all have a fear of missing out of the next greatest shiny object. No different than the peer pressure we all tell our kids to avoid as a teenager, fear of missing out socially 
and with people the exact same simple truths hiding in plain sight in the world of investing. I love that. Yeah, what's your deal? That's hilarious. I, <laughs> I mean, really, and then I say, we have a mascot to prove it. And I showed him Jomo. I was like, man, they really, really were wondering about me at that point. And that's okay. Because when you're not worried about what anybody is thinking about you, you've taken the biggest step toward investment success. <laughs> And you have a joy of missing out. <laughs> oh. Did I mention I wasn't that popular in high school? Okay. <laughs> Different. Oh, that's so funny. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll somehow get a picture for our listeners to see our mascot. It is an actual, uh, is an actual stuffed animal. And uh, it's absolutely incredible. And I, it, the fact you took it, <laughs> took it to the classes is even funnier. So, I love what you said about how <clears throat> how this sounds so simple and, and too good to be true. A couple of institutions, a few times on this show, and I'm going to do it again, right? I'm going to take the gloves off, and we're going to we're going to pick on Calpers, um, and they run something like a 500 billion dollar pension fund for the employees of California, um, and they are they have fired. I think they've gone through chief investment officers. I think like five or six of them over the past you know like seven years. Um, so right now they're, they've got a job opening. It's $300,000 position to be the CIO of the CalPERS pension fund. Um, and in the job posting verbatim, it asks for cultural competence. It asks for, or says that the ideal candidate has to be culturally competent. Uh, the ability to effectively listen, um, the ability to read the room and present in a way, uh, that doesn't offend or isn't insensitive to CalPERS diverse culture. Um, they go on and Ryan talked about this last week where there was a 300 page, uh, you know, disclosure that they went through of all their different funds and 130 page, um, investment kind of guiding principle here. And there's just this confusing, gigantic mess and nowhere in the posting for the CIO, the chief investment officer, did it talk about what their target return ought to be or their risk parameter. I mean, they're talking about all these things outside of what truly matters. And if you think about what the pension is, I mean, how many people's live livelihood depend on receiving payments from this pension that they've spent their life putting money into, right? So it's kind of interesting. Um, and I saw everybody- all, all their mailbox money is now forwarded to Idaho and Texas since they're all moving from California, but I digress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, hey, good, good, good point there because while I was, I was reading through this and kind of laughing at how crazy this seemed and, and uh, you know, pitied the person that would apply. There was only 55 applicants for this job, by the way, which was shocking. Like there should be thousands of applicants. Um, I, I found this story of, uh, of the manager of the Percy Fund, which is the Idaho pension. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this really briefly, but th the story is that uh, this guy whose name's Bob Maynard um, became the chief investment officer of the Percy Fund. And we're talking uh, 10 times smaller than the CalPERS Fund. I think it's 500 billion at CalPERS and just over 50 billion at, uh, at Percy here in Idaho. So he inherited this in 1992. And he was quoted of saying when he inherited, it was in absolutely terrible shape. Right. And this guy, I love this guy. He comes from the Alaskan minefields where he started managing money after they discovered gold and oil. He was an engineer, very uh, scientific, evidence based guy, and just happened to be in the right spot at the right time. And they recruited him to come into Idaho 
and, and manage the pension. And he said it was in terrible shape. Um, he was the fourth uh, chief investment officer in four year period of time. Basically, they, so he gets there, gets to the meeting and they said, look, we don't want to be at the bottom anymore. The performance numbers of the Percy Fund were, were terrible. They were in the bottom quartile of public pensions. Um, we don't want to be at the bottom anymore, they said. Just get us in the pack and don't goof it up, right, is what they told him, which I think that took a lot of foresight uh, to tell him that. And so he went in and he rolled up his sleeves and he, he got to work and he started overhauling the entire pension, right? And he, uh, he, he was quoted, he said, we want to be simple. Right? We want to be transparent, we want to be focused, and we want to be present. And I thought that this was incredibly powerful because all of this is exactly how I manage my own portfolio and recommend people we work for think about theirs. Right? He increased their equity allocation from 60% to 70%. Um, he moved all of the uh, fund's investments out of these complex alternative strategies into very simple, actively managed equity strategies including some passive and some active, actively managed income approaches. Um, he says, quote, we don't follow any endowment model. We don't do any of that risk parity or risk budgeting or risk sleeves. We don't do frontier markets. Then the list gets longer, right? Percy has no specifically high yield bonds. They don't have bank loans. They don't have commodities. They don't have real assets. They don't have leverage loan convertibles in the portfolio which is exactly the opposite of what you see in the CalPERS portfolio. Um, we won't use any factor investing, smart beta, or portable alpha strategies. And we certainly won't bring investments in-house, right? So all of that, uh, on and on and on. He was preaching what we say on this show of keeping it very simple, keeping it transparent, one page, you can see the playbook. It worked, right? So from 1992 to now, Percy has climbed the ranks and they are in the top 3% of uh, successful strategies um, in these, these pension funds, right? The, the fiscal year was uh, fiscal year return in 21 was 27.9%. And I think about that. Um, and I think about how important that, that pension is going to be for people. And um, that's the strategy that you want to implement. And what Percy did compared to what CalPERS is doing, and CalPERS performance is substandard and below average, and, and they're really struggling. They're jumping from train station to train station, right? Luckily, I learned this lesson at a train station in Paris, and it really didn't matter because we were having fun in this you know, train terminal. Luckily, luckily, I didn't have to learn this lesson managing my own portfolio. Whereas Percy, uh, the, tra the, the transparent, simple model, they got it right. And you can see that they got to their destination quicker. So I just thought that this was a really incredibly powerful lesson that the most sophisticated of all investors, you know, chief investment officers of pension funds uh, need to be remembered, uh, reminded about and, and need to implement themselves all the way down to someone just starting out. It's incredibly powerful and important stuff here. Well, and, and the reason we are delighted to share any of the pages of our very small, simple evidence-based playbook on mailbox money and the reason we called it mailbox money was that kind of going back in time and and there's a lot of very rich successful investors that are secretly envious of those poor pensioners that we don't have a lot of those traditional pensions anymore um some of on those pensions they really ask their employer or their own plan as 
they discuss it with their spouse one question when I retire what will my income be and if that was a hundred thousand dollars just to make up another simple round number like you did and if they could figure out if they were good living inside of that number that mailbox money that they were guaranteed the investment world or jumping trains and if somebody without a pension tried to magically take a hundred thousand dollar 401k and turn it into a million one day and all of this incredible anxiety to get there and, and there's no blame it's to be shared i mean it's both the system the regulation that switched um 401ks from pensions it's greed from corporations and from individuals that conspired it took a co-conspiracy there and i would ask that hundred thousand dollars if they are able to multiply into a million would you rather have a hundred thousand dollar pension income for the rest of your life or a million dollar 401k most really really successful investors that were able to build up a million dollars would actually rather have that mailbox money and the, sh and the evidence the simple math that you shared of dividend growth is certainly our best answer that goes back over 200 years this has nothing to do with us nothing that we're responsible for but just kind of isolating that and simplifying it um, and then the the toughest superpower along the way the, the pension they had it easy they just asked that one question what will it be if i retire at this age and they didn't have any other questions we all are forced to deal with all these other questions now so the jomo that superpower um that's going to be the trick um are we able to ignore all of those other distractions um and and that is and, and i the, so the, the the end of that class i had them to to try to produce an illustration of what i meant by jomo so they wouldn't roll their eyes at me and the fear of missing out i said okay all the great attractive jobs and investments and they could list them on one board and it was exciting and then on the other board i had them list the absolute worst most boring jobs imaginable and we had fun doing that and then we went to the chart room and guess which businesses as a stakeholder with pay raises annually dramatically outperformed the market and i put one up you can we'll share the chart and the notes um their, their number one consensus answer by the way was trash man um which <laughs> i happened to be lucky and was able to pull right out of our bag of tricks and our simple playbook <laughs> company that's quadrupled the market over the last couple of years but a lot of these ideas um and exact exactly why you will have me again next week on mailbox money jackson worry not i was not able to apply for that cio job because <laughs> the number one criteria was culturally competent I am absolutely <laughs> not. If you do not worry what anybody thinks about you. And really, all joking aside, isn't that what dooms the biggest of the best, as you shared with, the biggest endowment money management job in the world, to any individual investor listening to this, is if they do try to be too culturally competent and they do mix politics into their portfolio and it gets overly complicated and expensive and they can't even answer the questions because they can't keep up with the questions. Um, I would submit that simplicity is the Holy Grail. So I'm glad you shared that. I love that. I love the story. I love that tagline. Simplicity is the Holy Grail. If anybody out there has any questions or would like to schedule a meeting with our team, email us team at freedomdaysolutions.com. And with that, we will see everybody next week. 
This show is brought to you by Freedom Day Solutions, LLC, a registered investment advisory firm advising individuals and families nationwide. Performance is not guaranteed and past results are not necessarily indicative of future performance. To learn more, visit freedomdaysolutions.com. This show contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and was shared for informational purposes only. Any forward-looking statement or opinion expressed is subject to change without notice. Nothing contained herein constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, nor is it to be relied on in making investment or other decisions. Clients of Freedom Day Solutions may hold positions in the securities discussed.